Hey, everybody, it's Manoush here, host of Note to Self. Our special project, The Privacy Paradox, lives on. Anyone can do the five-part plan to take back some control of their personal information at privacyparadox.org. We know that life is uh, busy, to say the least, these days, so it is available on demand. Tell your friends. If you already took part, thank you. You can check out our tip sheet for small and big next steps you can take. And here's a little bonus episode from me and the gang. Take a listen to the live event we had here in New York City with me, ProPublica's senior investigative reporter, Julia Angwin, and Anil Dash, a techie who has become a real spokesman for digital tools with a conscience. Many people in the audience told us they loved this nerdy and heartwarming event, so we wanted to share it with you. Enjoy. It is my great pleasure to welcome two people whose work have been of great inspiration to me. Julia Angwin, who is ProPublica's award-winning investigative journalist, and Anil Dash, entrepreneur, activist, writer, and he was recently appointed CEO of Fog Creek Software. So please welcome them. Hello. Hello. And Neil, you're a CEO again. Yeah, they, uh, I'm masquerading as a grown-up these days. Just sort of set the scene for me, Neil, where you are. I mean, you've done stuff about privacy a lot in the past, mm. but where are you right now with this? I've been on social media pretty much as long as it's existed and um, probably made, I don't know if it was a, a smart choice, but I made a very strong choice of um, erring on the side of too much information being out there, maybe not all of it accurate, as opposed to trying to safeguard my information and keep it from getting out, the idea of cutting it off was never going to be sustainable. Mm. And that was the sort of conclusion I ran to early on. And then it was like, well, how can I be the authority on it? How can I be the place that people go, you know, for information about me is me or that there is so much out there of varying degrees of quality that I can sort of at least maintain, uh, the sort of source of truth on those things. Okay, I want, let's leave it there for now, but I want you to weave that into our conversation. And I want to start with Julia. Anil, I couldn't be more different. I spend all my time trying to hide my data. (laughs) That's good, okay. Um, You you may be more wise than me. (laughs) It's not clear. I think we're both probably losing. But anyways. um, (laughs) It's about losing differently. That's what America is about. It's really about how you lose. <laughs> I'm right, losing let's, let's stay positive for at least five more minutes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Give me a positive. Okay. So at ProPublica, we were talking about ways we could try to illustrate how people interact with their data because it's such an abstract concept, privacy. Yes. Like, it's like, what does that even mean, right? And I kind of hate the word. I've started to hate the word. And so I've been starting to call it human rights. <laughs> like, I want human rights about my data. Anyways, um, so basically to show people, to have them engage with what Facebook knows about them, we built a very simple tool that you just add to your Chrome web browser. It's just a one-click installation. And it just surfaces all the categories that they've placed you in. We didn't know what were all the categories that they placed people in. We just knew the ones we saw on our pages. But we got the categories, and we found there were more than 52,000 categories that at, that pro, that Facebook has placed people into. What you discovered, Julia, was a very strange category. We were very confused when we discovered ethnic affinity. Um, because it turned out, um, we first noticed it with my colleague, Terry, who's here, and he said, 
oh, Facebook thinks I'm African-American. And I was like, that's weird because you're not. Then we were like, what does this mean? And then people started sending in their data. And we realized that there were a lot of ethnic affinities, uh, Asian-American, Hispanic. And then we separately noticed that there was a way that you could go in and buy ads and choose to block people. So not only could you target ads to an ethnic affinity, or you could say, I want my ad to be not seen by this ethnic affinity. And so I checked with some lawyers and I was like, aren't there some laws about this? I'm scratching my head. I feel like I remember this somewhere. So yes, it's against the law to place ads for housing, credit, or employment that exclude members of certain races, right? Protected classes and also age and gender as well. Just the way that you can't run an ad saying no blacks need apply or only women for a secretarial job or whatever, it would seem like you, you shouldn't be able to do that on Facebook either. So we went to Facebook and asked them about it and they said, no, you just don't understand what ad targeting is. So we wrote a story saying, okay, cool, here's this thing that's happening. Then um, the Congressional Black Caucus wrote a letter. HUD started an investigation. We were like, this is cool. Let's see if we can buy an ad that is for housing. So we bought an ad targeting people who are interested in housing and housing-related categories. We blocked it from being seen by anyone um, African-American, Asian-American, or Hispanic. And the ad was... Affinity, sorry. So, we, so it wasn't that you were blocking like Asian Americans, you were blocking people who like Asian Americans. Yes, we were only blocking so people who like Asian Americans. Right. Which is like weird. Weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is weird. So our ad was approved by their automated system within minutes and went up. Then, as I mentioned, a bunch of people weighed in and so A bunch of people including Congress people, <laughs> yes. HUD. Right, federal regulators. Um, and said what? And said, uh, we're not sure how this complies with the law. We're looking into that. One of the interesting things about it, I mean, I, I joke about it, but in, in a serious level of like, why wouldn't there be, you know, Caucasian affinity or white affinity is there's from a program programming standpoint, how would you deduce affinity? You know, to live in America, you have to be fluent in white culture. It doesn't matter what your affinity group is, yeah. right? And, but if you, especially if you're white, you don't necessarily have to be literate in any of the other cultures. And so you can, you have a baseline white affinity that is just required to exist in society in America. White affinity required. Well, category. right. But, 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 but if I look at it from, from like, a, again, a programming mindset, if they didn't know about the ethical implications or the privacy implications, you would say there is no way to programmatically detect that somebody's like literate or has an affinity towards white culture in America because you have to be if you want to like be employed and you know <laughs> exist in the world. And so like this thing of like, well, that's hard, so we're not going to do that. But it's really easy to tell like if somebody's like wants to be like you know I mean you know Indian American, that's not hard at all to deduce. It's like has this person ever mentioned non on Facebook? You're like boom, <laughs> you know like it's like this is a very again like I'm a bad coder and I could write the logic for that. And so, so but does that go? Like, that speaks then back to the people who are hired to make the technology. I mean, you need to have a diverse people to get diverse algorithms. It's a huge part of it. I think there's also just in the part of the move fast and break things ethos that does apply. The we'll get to that in the next version, right? Right. So they're like, oh yeah, we can we can figure out a way to add white affinity, and we'll do that in our next release next year. 
And right now we just want to get this thing launched and get all those ad dollars and we'll ship it and we'll fix it later. And we all know that. We all get those, you know, app update notifications on your phone. It's time to update. And most of them are like, oh, we have this little bug and we fixed it. And everything that they see in terms of the software has a shortcoming is only parsed as a bug in the software, a, f- a feature to be added. And the idea that the gap between what they want to launch in the world and put in the app store and what the law requires or what just, you know, ethics requires in society uh, might have a big gap in between them. That's something that's not obvious or evident in the conference room on the whiteboard when you're sketching out an idea. It's so funny that you say that because that was the, the question I asked. At first they were saying, like, okay, these are just ethnic affinities. They're not really your ethnicity, so it doesn't matter. The law doesn't apply. And I said, but the thing that's interesting about your ethnic affinity, you can see it up there, I think, it's under a category called demographics. Yeah. Huh. And they were like, oh, that was a bug. We're fixing it in the next version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That's just text. We can change it. It's exactly and right. Just, yeah. And, and that so much of our entire legal framework is predicated on this idea of fairly static structures. Right? They, well, you can't just change that text. And so right. the idea that um, you'd have to have this dynamic system that's constantly adapting is really important. The other thing is that there would be something that would be subject to interpretation. And so what did Facebook tell you, Julia? Like, they, they said, okay, we will... Eventually, after um, all these other people weighed in, they <laughs> said they would build a new tool to make sure this wouldn't happen again. And, um, you know, that tool is supposed to roll out this quarter, so I, I need to check if, they're, if it comes out, because we do have a new HUD director... So. Yeah, and also one of the things you'll notice in the culture of Silicon Valley, and I think Facebook is probably a standard bearer on this, is the answer to broken software is always more software. Yes. <laughs> and so there's this weird thing where they look, and then the new software won't have any bugs. Yeah. Right. And it's right. Like, but you just the reason you had to do it because the last thing was broken, and you're like, yeah. Well, who's going to build the new one? Same people. Okay. Yeah. How did you evolve out of that? Uh, by making a lot of horrible systems that hurt a lot of people. <laughs> Are you, you serious? Know? Yeah. I mean, I built uh, social media tools for years. And, I mean, there's a long story to it. But the short version is, you know, I built uh, blogging software people could publish. And I was very excited by the ideas that we were giving people a voice. And we did. Um, but we took credit when people would, like, somebody commented on somebody else's blog. And they became friends. And eventually they got married. And that's thanks to our software. And then we would say, well, and this person was hounded out of their house and had their, you know, lives destroyed. And we're like, well, that's not our fault. The technology's neutral. Um, and then, you know, the 50th time it happened or the 100th time it happened uh, or one of the times when I was had my personal information published on a platform that I had helped create, I realized, you know what, we can't deny our culpability anymore. Uh, and so that, you know, was a bit of a uh, long overdue awakening that I went through that, um, unfortunately, those lessons are not taught in computer science programs. So... Everybody has to learn them again and go through that pain again and again and again until hopefully we can stop repeating that mistake. But why aren't they being taught? I feel like we're at this moment where like, the pressure is starting to build, or am I seeing it from here? And what, pressure, I mean, what pressure are they under in Silicon Valley? Who's, saying, like, who's not cutting them checks and funding their companies? There's nobody that's like, we're not going to fund you because you weren't thoughtful about people's privacy. At least not that I've seen yet. I was hardened by the, what was it, Never Again? Yes, the Never Again Tech Pledge. That was... um, Yes. So right after the election, there was a petition that thousands of technologists signed that said we will not be party to the idea that what we build will will help people be persecuted. Yeah, specifically refusing to create the um, Muslim registration database that the... um, 
Trump campaign and then the Trump administration promised. And, um, you know, that came out of a, a, the tech solidarity movement, which has sprung up in the last several months. And um, the shocking thing about that is it's unprecedented to have that kind of grassroots effort. There have been different causes that tech has cared about. But there's not been, I mean, I think of like there was a... Um, uh, paycheck collusion issue between Google and Apple and 14 of the biggest tech companies where, you know, Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt, they sort of colluded against their own employees to depress their wages by denying them the ability to uh, switch jobs. And even with that, taking money out of people's paychecks or like, you know, taking money out of their kids' college funds, um, the employees in Silicon Valley still didn't unionize, still didn't organize. Mm. So it would be like, well, what would it take for you all to organize, if literally like Steve Jobs colluding with his biggest competitor to depress your wages wasn't enough for right. you to kind of raise your hand and be like, maybe there's a problem here. Uh, and it turns out it was this extreme, like being gang-pressed into creating a Muslim registry before they sort of thought, maybe we should have some stand that we want to take. I think I find so uh, desperately difficult to understand is how much it depends on exactly the human being who has their hands on it. So I went to visit um, MIT's Media Lab a couple weeks ago, and I visited Sandy Pentland. He is like the big data guy, and he's like, it is possible to make it so that a genocide could not happen without people knowing. How could you deny that future where we can use the data to solve incredibly big issues in this world. There are already massive public benefits to the data that are collected, and all of us you know, benefit in small and big ways. Take Facebook itself, right? The ability to, for me to send a message to my relatives on the other side of the world instantly and see what's going on in their lives, that is enormously valuable. I wish I had the option to choose to pay in other ways other than my privacy, but the, the, the value is inarguable. But to that specific point, the example of people of like, you know, a, a genocide could never happen without people knowing... I think the issue has seldom been that people didn't know a genocide was happening when it happens. The issue is whether we were moved to do anything about it. Um, and that is not something that it is proven that these platforms make us any better at. So if we're going to say we've got the ability to know uh, a great injustice is going on, we'll say, okay, great, but how do we design a system that is going to encourage us to act and not just hit a like button when somebody says some, that that's awful, that shouldn't happen. So, I mean, what I wonder is, could there be something like a Hippocratic oath for coders or something where we just sort of say the power of what you can do, similar to physicians, is immense. And so mm. we need to sort of, okay, and maybe people won't stick to it, but at least there's something. We don't, we don't have an ethical framework for the creation of technology, right? So, you know, doctors have first do no harm and... You know, journalists have speak truth to power, and coders, as best we know right now, have move fast and break things. <laughs> and the you know the shift is going to have to be um, towards mapping to the same ethics standards that other indus- mature industries have, right? So, if you're a lawyer, you can be disbarred if your peers felt you've crossed the ethical lines of what you're supposed to do. Same for doctors. The thing with with code is that. It's in so many different disciplines. You know, my father is a civil engineer for 40 years, and they would make a play, essentially, you know, like, don't let the bridges fall down. And people are like, that sounds like a good promise. And they have a way to sort of <laughs> right. enforce that. But it's, that's one industry, and it's discrete. And tech is not that. Tech is in every industry. There are people writing software to be helping doctors. There are people writing software to be helping engineers. And so this domain specificity makes it very, very hard to come up with ethical standards 
The Never Again pledge was the first step towards an ethical commitment by a large-scale number of people in the tech industry. And we're, what, 50 years into the software industry as we know it? And you know, the, one of the more striking things about that is um, the majority of the top CS programs in, in the country and in the world have no real formal ethics curriculum as part of them. Right? So every medical school, every journalism school, every business school has a, at least a couple token credits that you've got to take in ethics. The people who are most likely to be funded in Silicon Valley are computer science graduates almost exclusively. And the majority of them will have come through programs that have no formal ethical training whatsoever. But I also want to say that almost every technological, ethical issue that I have written about in my career as a journalist have been inadvertent, right? Like, yes. I mean, yes. it is. I have. They're not I'm, deliberate transgressions. Yeah, and, and everyone's just like you said, moving fast and breaking things, and like you know, um, and so it just. And yes, I think a Hippocratic Oath would be good, but that is clearly not enough, right? That is mm-hmm. just the baseline. And, you know, yeah, from I my mean, people vantage point... People go to business point, school and take ethics classes, and it doesn't always work out. I think the complexity of the problem is the, is the real challenge. So we look at something like um, Volkswagen lying about the emissions of its oh, cars. God, yeah. And um, I don't know, you know, who made the call that this is a test we should try to cheat. Um, but it's very possible that a very senior person was like, we absolutely have to pass this test. That a, a middle management person was like, we need to make sure that this vehicle passes the test and that's what the output from the software should be. And the coder said, I got a set of requirements right. and I'm going to implement them. Right. And almost every person in the chain is making a decision that is not knowably unethical. right? And, and so it's the telephone game as to who's culpable for these choices. And these are... I think to Julia's point, it is not. We we there are very very few bad actors in tech. I mean, you know, Peter Thiel aside, there aren't a lot of mustache <laughs> twirling villains, and so we're lucky for that. But I, I think I wasn't joking. Uh, but I think the the thing that is really striking is that good people, and I hope to count myself among them, have made tools that hurt people, mm-hmm. and it's because it's not knowable the outcomes of these systems that we build in the same way as any complex system. When we build laws, we don't think of unintended consequences that we didn't anticipate. When we build a network that is highways or a network that is railways, you know, we don't think of unintended consequences. And the difference is, you know, a highway happens over years, right? The highway system in America took decades to build. Uh, In this case, we can build networks that touch everybody or almost everybody in America in years and months and to move at that speed and move fast and break things, um, we can cause these negative harms much, much faster than we can remedy them. And I guess one thing that I would like to say is I think that there's also journalists, um, you know, we're the watchdogs of these institutions. I just want there to be more people mm-hmm. holding these algorithms accountable. And I'm trying to do it with my team at ProPublica. And, but it's weird that but there's... But there's not a hundred of you. There's one of you. No, I, there are four of us, but yes, yeah. that's right. One I of mean, your my, teams. My, my team, yeah. And there need to be... My point is there actually need to be a hundred such teams. And academics are... There are a few academic teams out there doing this, but there's just um, a lack of you know tech literacy, actually, because most... The problem is the money sucks most of the tech talent yeah. into the industry itself, and so it is just a challenge for society to figure out ways to build these accountability systems in that we have built for other industries, but we haven't really built for tech in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people on your team would be making five times as much money going to Facebook. Don't tell them. But- Hello. <laughs> Let's take a question. <laughs> 
have is, should I stop using Gmail? So Gmail is really great at, um, at keeping its data encrypted and synced and, you know, reliability. I think they spend a lot of effort uh, protecting against other nation-state espionage attacks. And so in general, um, it's not a bad place to have your email. I switched off of Gmail to RiseUp, which is a small activist-run email service that doesn't have any of those advantages. It's run by, like, four dudes who don't make enough money and stay up all night defending against DDoS attacks from very low-level people. However, (laughs) (laughs) However, I'll tell you this. The problem is you can't win. We're all losing, right? Like, we're basically all in information warfare all the time. We're out there, we're like, in individually, hand-to-hand combat, and we don't have armor on, right? And so, nobody's winning this game. I sort of think of it as, how do you mitigate your risk? I don't blame anyone who chooses to mitigate other risks, because you know what? We're all gonna get screwed one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's work somewhere, right? There's work either on maintaining these obscure passwords that have no other, you know, fail-safe behind them, or there's enabling two-factor authentication, which for a lot of people would be really useful. Um, there's going to be some work. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest things is ultimately almost all these trade-offs come down to convenience. I mean, I, I couldn't even count how many hours I spend on typing in two-factor authentication codes and uh, verifying my ID in multiple places and all those things that I do. And um, to literally budget into your time, right, this year I'm going to spend a full day doing stupid password hygiene things. And then I do think it's a very personal decision about where you decide to spend your effort. I mean, for me, my nine-year-old son came came to me this weekend and was like, I want an email account. And I was like, oh, no, here's the question. And it was like, well, do you just open a Gmail because it's easy and that's what his friends are going to have? Or, I mean, to me, I'm paranoid in a different way. I'm like, no, it's my job to protect his identity. Google is going to start building a dossier on him. I'm his mom, and so I don't know. I think I might throw him to your four dudes at Rise Up. Like, I think I might start him out. It's yeah. like, so what annoys me is if we don't know what we've agreed to. That's what bothers me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to another question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Frank. Frank. I was under the impression um, that when you turn off your locator that you can't be located. And then there's this something called this iCloud, which is kind of a mystery to me that kind of like rains on firewalls and puts them out, and then your data just kind of oozes out all over the place. Is there any like single like line of defense? Let's call it the war on losing <laughs> losing our information, like that, that you can like suggest to us. Single line of defense? <laughs> That's Not hard. a single one. Um, I always say to people like the very, very, very best thing you can do for yourself is make a longer password. I do, it, it, it actually is the most important thing. But, um, you know, in terms of your phone, the phone is really hard because it is actually a tracker. It's designed to track your location so that the tower can communicate with you at all times. So, um, and then it's sending off the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. You know, if you want to know what I do, I turn off Wi-Fi because I don't like to... Um, I don't like the fact that every Wi-Fi network can identify your phone, and many stores and locations use that to identify you. So I only use the the cell tower, which costs extra money, right? So that's also expensive. Um, Everything you do 
has an upside and a downside. One of the most straightforward things to do is to sort of pursue um, as much heterogeneity to the tech that you use as possible. So don't go all in on any one platform. Mm. Right? If you have your email with one service, you have your uh, photos with another service, you have your uh, messaging with a third service, and they are not all Facebook. They are not all Google. They are not all Apple. And especially that they're not all those three or four big, giant, publicly traded companies, that there are these small, off-the-beaten-path, independent providers. And their security may or may not be as good. I mean, everything is hacked all the time. Just assume that. The question is, what do you do with you know that sort of diversity of information? To not put all your eggs in one basket is really important. One of the things for me that I've realized is very personally important is... Um, for a lot of reasons, for the same reason that you know you want to have mom and pop businesses on Main Street and not just Walmart, supporting the small independent providers of all these different services is really key. Um, for phones, there aren't you're not going to get a smartphone from you know some kid that made it in his garage. But we can use a lot of different providers. So you know you, to have your your email rise up, to have your search engine in your browser set to DuckDuckGo, to have uh, your messaging service be Signal, to have like there are a lot of really good, um, oftentimes very very secure. Uh, third-party options, and there is no security in obscurity, but there is at least obscurity, and that is something that has some value. But okay, so Frank, I just mm-hmm. want to say one mm-hmm. thing to you: don't stop caring about it. I think is the most important thing. Even to me, it's also like go to the bar and turn off your phone and have a <laughs> private conversation with your friend, and remember what privacy is and why it matters in this society. And I feel like we have to say really broad things like that right Mm -hmm. now. And please Mm -hmm. do keep caring about it, even if it does sound really difficult. You'll notice that Julia's wearing all black and I'm wearing all white today. Because I'm the voice of doom. (laughs) I'm trying to be... This is the positive version. This is the ninja version. (laughs) So we have to wrap it up. Before we go, uh, let's... uh, Please, a positive note. One thing (laughs) that you would like people to take with them as they walk out the door. You know... um, I do look with a lot of hope towards how the tech community in particular has been galvanized by things like the Never Again Pledge, besides obviously being meaningful to not create a registry uh, by religion in America, the idea that we have an ethical obligation to one another, that we can publicly declare it, that we can use our collective power as workers to influence you know, leaders and, and executives to follow, and that it can be on the basis of protecting the most vulnerable I think it's a watershed moment, and um, it's a maturity that is overdue, but the more I think about it, it's sort of profound and heartening, and so hopefully it's just a first good step. What all of you can do, if you're not technologists, you're not coders, uh, is ask. You know, when you choose a product, when you choose a service, when you sign up for something, when you uh, buy a new device, uh, just ask. And, you know, where do you stand on these issues, and have you taken a stand uh, and the more you do that, the more people will be inclined to do so. The positive thing I would say is that although you know tech has made it easy to sort of automate injustice, automate um, hate with Twitter trolls and you know all the rest of it, at the same time, I think it it is um, more auditable. Like we can call out and monitor these actions on the internet because. 
they're based on computers and we can use computers to monitor the computers, right? And so I do think we have some great hope of holding these new tech systems accountable in ways that we weren't able to hold some of the human systems accountable in the past. And so I have hope that we can sort of um, shame, regulate, and corral all of this into a fairer and more just world. Okay, I'm going to give you mine. Um, My nine-year-old Nearold and I, we went to Washington, D.C., and we went to the um, archives. And it was incredibly powerful to see the Bill of Rights and the amendments there and to see the, well, it's actually not the fourth because, like, they changed it in Madison, blah, blah, blah. But mm. <laughs> what became the Fourth Amendment, this idea that it is a civil right for you to be alone. And that just, I don't know why, it really like struck me. And to have this conversation with my nine-year-old was incredibly moving. Um, so think about it. Think about why privacy matters to you as we go forward. Thank you again for coming. Really appreciate it. And on behalf of the Note to Self team and WNYC Studios, many thanks to the Green Space team, ProPublica, and Anil Dash for making it happen. <laughs>